From Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News. Hello and welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Kim Lewis and joining me on the panel this week are VOA White House correspondent Anita Powell and Moment Magazine contributor Dan Ravive. Welcome, Anita and Dan. Always a pleasure. Hi, Kim. Thanks. Well, here are the issues. President Biden announced the United States will send 31 Abrams tanks to Ukraine to counter an expected fresh Russian offensive in the coming months. Germany said it would provide 14 of its Leopard 2 tanks, the first step in establishing two battalions with the powerful tanks in Ukraine. Well, top Chinese, Russian and American officials are scrambling this month to visit African nations and pledge their commitment to the world's fastest growing continent. As President Biden prepares for a visit later this year, several of his top officials are in Africa, walking a line between the desire to get the continent's support against Russian aggression and Chinese ambitions and the desire to do work that benefits the people of the second largest continent. The controversy over classified documents raises the questions of why so much government information is secret and how it should be protected and handled. The U.S. Department of Justice is investigating the alleged mishandling of classified documents by both President Biden and his predecessor, Donald Trump. Former Vice President Mike Pence's lawyer discovered classified documents at his home. The White House is reintroducing gun control measures in the Senate to renew the 1994 assault weapons ban that expired in 2004. The new year has brought six mass killings in the U.S. in fewer than three weeks, accounting for at least 39 deaths. Well, those are the issues, and let's get started. Well, Anita, the Biden administration's decision to reverse its previous stance and send tanks to Ukraine is a significant political and military move. So what caused this reverse in position? I just want to clarify that the Biden administration was clear that the idea of sending tanks to Ukraine was never off the table. There were just some concerns about sending these particular tanks, because if you know anything about the M1 Abrams tank, it runs on jet fuel and it burns through something like three gallons of jet fuel. That's 12 liters of jet fuel per mile. So it's not exactly an efficient vehicle. It's very difficult to maintain. Not a fun ride, by the way. I've been in a number of them. Not the most comfortable, but it's not there for comfort. It's there to do the job. So there were concerns about that. But more importantly, Berlin was insisting that if they were to send their Leopard tanks to Ukraine, that the U.S. needed to get in on the deal as well and be with them. So when Biden spoke, he underscored that this is all about NATO's unity and that NATO is united in the face of Russian aggression and that, as he likes to say, Putin wanted the separation of NATO and instead he got a stronger NATO. I just want to say something about the speed of these tanks. It's going to take months, even as much as a year, for these Abram tanks to actually hit the ground in Ukraine. In the meantime, these 14 German Leopard tanks are going to be doing a lot of the heavy lifting and whatever other European nations are able to send, including the UK's Challenger tanks and other Leopard tanks belonging to, say, Poland and other countries. This is not something that's going to happen overnight. I just want to understand score that. The German Leopard tank also will go apparently to Ukraine from other countries, not just from Germany, now that there's kind of a green light. I'm actually surprised at the number of tanks. We're talking about dozens. And according to various articles about the Ukrainian military, even at the start of this war, 
when Russia invaded Ukraine in February of last year, Ukraine had 900 tanks. Yeah, they were Russian-made or Soviet-made from many years ago. And apparently Ukraine has captured even more Russian tanks. So there we're talking about hundreds of tanks. And now a few dozen from the West, from NATO, are really going to make a difference. So I think there's a combination here of what's important, you know, in a military sense on the battlefield, and perhaps more importantly, the sign that the Western allies still support Ukraine, will give Ukraine everything that they can, apparently, because really the West, Washington certainly wants Russia to lose this war. Again, what form will that take? How will Ukraine possibly push the Russians out of Ukrainian territory, especially out of the eastern part of Ukraine, where the Russians have been now for almost nine years? I don't know how this is going to end, but I suppose these tanks ought to help the Ukrainians. Yes, and also Ukraine is asking for more in terms of fighter jets. Will these weapons be enough? The short answer is no, this will not be enough in the near term to fill the Ukrainians' needs, according to them. Anita, I know you're following this every day and reporting on the stand that the United States is taking. And so while President Joe Biden wants Russia to lose, and he certainly wants to underline that the NATO Western alliance is solid on this, there's still that sensitivity, isn't there, about helping the Ukrainians perhaps cross the line into Russia with that concern that that might trigger President Vladimir Putin to do something even you know, more radical like using nuclear weapons. There is that reluctance in Washington. Sure. And that reluctance has been there ever since actually the U.S. first indicated its support of Ukraine, I think, because at any moment Ukraine could use these weapons to strike across the border and you know, make a push into Russian territory, I suppose. The White House has been very clear that Ukraine is in charge of its own war planning. They're kind of both saying Ukraine has both the standing, but also the responsibility to do this the way they feel like they need to do it. It's both washing their hands of it, but also saying that they trust Ukraine. So it's an interesting balance. But yeah, it's always a possibility, I think. And Russia has said that in response to this decision to send tanks, that the US and allies are escalating. You know, they've intimated that there could be some nasty surprises in store. And that is definitely worrying. Very good points that you all have brought up on this issue. So we will continue to follow developments. And now over to Africa, where members of President Biden's cabinet are touring Africa tandemly. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Linda Thomas-Greenfield are both touring the continent. This is Thomas-Greenfield's third visit to the continent since becoming the U.N. ambassador. One thing I know that Thomas-Greenfield is looking at is addressing the issue of reforming the U.N. Security Council and to include Africa. So how big of a goal is this for Biden? So Biden announced this in September at the UN General Assembly and said he would support having permanent African representation on the Security Council, which is something that African nations and the African Union have been calling for for as long as I can remember, so at least a decade. What is interesting is that there's no clarity on what this could actually look like. Which African country is going to hold that seat? The obvious answer is probably South Africa because it's the only G20 nation from Africa. So it has, you know, the economy, the standing, so on and so forth. But that's a pretty contentious idea for a lot of African countries who would not want to see South Africa holding that seat. So I think we're not extremely close to seeing this realized. 
But there is, of course, that statement by President Biden and his administration. And in general, I would say a tone of being more interested in Africa than the United States government seemed to be really for many years. An example, we saw it in Washington, if only because of the traffic jams near the White House and several of the leading hotels in December, when there was that U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit. And that does mean that political and government leaders from Africa were in the American capital. There hadn't been a summit like that for eight years. And so they were back in business talking again. And I felt that the United States was being careful to say that this isn't all about sending aid to Africa, you know, like Africa is a poor continent and it needs aid, but instead about investment. And of course, that's a very important phrase. As the United States, it will directly invest from the U.S. government, but also encourage American companies to invest more money in Africa. But always in the background, I hear this geostrategic issue that leading African nations are very open to investments by China and also economic cooperation with Russia. And so there's the thought in the U.S. that America really is falling behind. And so I see an effort here to kind of catch up and be involved and realize the potential that Africa represents. It's such a lovely vision that you just sketched out, Dan, but the fundamental problem is that Africa has noticed, and I hate actually calling Africa a continent as if it's a country, but African nations have seen notable democratic backsliding in the last year. And so what this means is that these things that you mentioned, this idea of principled leadership, of investment that will actually benefit the people in a more equitable manner, that is something that people of African nations are probably very keen on, but the entrenched leadership who the administration actually have to work with might not be so interested in. And that is the fundamental disconnect here that the U.S. has to navigate. This idea that we have entrenched, dubiously democratic leadership in some parts of the continent who, of course, have to say, oh, yes, of course, we want development for all. Of course, we want all of these initiatives. But there's really no impetus for them to do it because they aren't exactly accountable to their people. Well, I would hope, frankly, as an American, that it will help that the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is uh, is touring parts of Africa. And the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, has certainly shown an interest uh, just in the past year. He was in South Africa, Senegal, Kenya, Democratic Republic of Congo. The interest is a good thing. I think I should realistically add that the American commercial news media, the channels that most Americans watch and get their news from, they hardly ever mention Africa. Maybe let's hope that'll change in a positive way. Yes, and also looking back at the competition aspect of this with China and Russia, and even some African leaders saying that they don't want their countries viewed as a source of competition for their resources. Does this put Africa in a good position or leave it more vulnerable to having to do what other countries want them to do in doing business with them? That's a very deep question, and I think that's one that every of the 50 plus African leaders is weighing. But we've let it fade from memory, the pain and the trauma of what happened in the post-liberation period in Africa from the 60s onward up till at least the 2000s, where great power competition on the continent really had an insidious effect. I'll just give you one example, which is the U.S. government's support of the government in South Africa, which at the time promoted apartheid because they didn't want to support the ANC because the African National Congress was very left-leaning to the point of being communist. And this sort of ideological support 
for a racist regime hurt a lot of people. You know, a lot of South Africans believe that the U.S. chose the wrong side in this battle, that their lives were worse because of it. And this is a lingering feeling in many countries across the continent. This sort of foreign influence and this foreign meddling, to use that word, has not actually helped the people who were trapped in the middle. And I think getting over that perception is going to be very difficult. And I think the U.S. needs to recognize this. Although, again, I would say that the U.S. and other Western countries, some of them that had colonies in Africa with a legacy of oppression and exploitation, I think they just have to try. You can't kind of abandon the entire continent to the interests of China and Russia. And so I'm glad the U.S. is trying. Well, it's time now for a quick break. And when we return, the controversy over the handling or mishandling of U.S. classified documents. Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington. If you would like to download the program, it's free on iTunes. Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voanews.com issues. While you're there, check out our other programs, Press Conference USA and Encounter. Also visit us on Facebook and leave a comment or two. Then like us at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Now back to our panel via Skype, VOA White House correspondent Anita Powell and Moment Magazine contributor Dan Revive. Well, the U.S. Department of Justice is investigating the alleged mishandling of classified documents by both President Biden and his predecessor, Donald Trump. Then the surprise discovery of classified documents at the home of former Vice President Mike Pence. So this controversy has raised questions over the handling of classified documents. And Anita, where does the Biden administration stand on this controversy at this point? Clear as mud, opaque, to use one word. So the Biden administration says that in their case, which is the only case that they're even remotely touching in public, that the Biden administration lawyers found some documents, they immediately informed the relevant authorities, but they're not commenting or talking about the particulars until the investigation plays out. Who knows how long this could take? I mean, we're looking at a time frame of months to years. So this opacity and this refusal to answer questions like how many documents were there? What was in them? These are normal questions that the American public is asking, that we are asking every day in the briefing room in the White House. It's leading to some frustration about not just how these documents were handled, but also it gives the impression that because they're not divulging these details, that there's something there. I wouldn't commit to saying that that's the case. Well, we're talking about papers that are marked secret or top secret. They could be about policy issues. They could be details of America's military or uh, intelligence gathered in foreign countries. And so as a citizen and as a journalist, I guess I expected that government officials would handle those papers very carefully and only in an authorized office or facility where there's some protection around and some security. And then we hear that some of those papers were at the homes of a former president, Donald Trump, the current president, Joe Biden. Some of those papers apparently from years ago when he was vice president and when he was a U.S. senator when it comes to Biden. And now Mike Pence, who was Trump's vice president, at his home there were some classified documents. So this is sloppiness, and I think there need to be rules, because sure, there is a danger that just about anyone who was visiting any of those homes, and in the case of Trump, his home is the Mar-a-Lago Club, 
that has members walking around that building in Palm Beach, Florida. So I think there need to be rules. I think, yes, even government officials need to follow the rules. I know people close to Donald Trump were concerned a few months ago that he might be prosecuted for mishandling documents and later for fighting the government agencies that wanted to get the documents back. Trump was defiantly and stubbornly saying he had the right to have them and he could declassify anything he wanted, even though now he's a former president. So now you get a man like Mike Pence who had some papers in his home in the state of Indiana. It's almost like the Trump team and the Biden team say, you see, it's just sloppiness. It's not our fault. The fault is the rules. So I have a feeling no one's going to be prosecuted. I hope some of the rules will be changed. Speaking of the rules, the people in the intelligence community will say that there is an issue with overclassification of documents. It's entirely possible that some of the documents found in any of those three homes detail, for example, the North Korean leader's new favorite sandwich. That's not particularly salacious, but does it merit classification? I think that's kind of dubious. A lot of these documents are protectively classified at the time because they don't know what the implications of them are at the time. And then later they're like, oh, yeah, we already knew that. So I just want to be clear that the U.S. government also has a reputation for overclassifying documents. Well, I'll give you that. But, you know, in the intelligence world, if it was, say, the CIA that found out what the North Korean leader's favorite sandwich is, then the CIA would put it in a classified report. Because don't forget how we found out about the sandwich (laughs) could be delicate, again, from the Mm. point of view of, say, the CIA. But really, I want to say again, politically, I know a lot of people who believed that Donald Trump might be prosecuted for this. And frankly, opponents of Donald Trump said, oh, good, maybe this will eliminate the possibility he becomes president again in 2024. But as we see, these things are so unpredictable. And in case you're wondering, Trump is only more visible with a decision now by Facebook to let him back on that platform after Twitter made that decision as well. I think we'll keep hearing from Donald Trump. I'm just going to close this subject out, Dan, with a joke. What is the North Korean leader's favorite sandwich? Oh, do tell. A nothing burger. I'm joking. But that is what this could end up being, is what former DOJ officials and former White House staffers have told me, that this could end up being, in some cases, a lot of nothing and a lot of fluff. Well, you both have summarized this topic quite well, and thank you. And we're going to move on to our last topic. The new year has brought six mass killings in the U.S. in fewer than three weeks. And the White House is reintroducing gun control measures. So where does this legislation stand at this time? It's hanging out in the Senate. And let me just clarify what the two tenets of these two pieces of legislation are. Number one, it would ban assault weapon sales. It's not clear to me if that includes the famous loophole for gun shows where you can't buy assault weapons in a gun shop, but you can go to a gun show and buy a weapon. I'm not clear on whether that is covered or not. And then number two, the second piece of proposed legislation raises the age for assault weapon purchases to 21. We're just welcoming a new Congress right now. This is on their plate. This is obviously going to take up a lot of oxygen. But we know already that the Republican caucus in in Congress is not particularly keen on passing any sort of gun control legislation. So this is going to face an uphill road. 
I know a lot of our worldwide listeners are wondering, gee, if there have been these mass murders, most recently in California, one angry man, we don't really understand the motivations, you know, gets an automatic weapon and goes into a dance club, for instance, in the Los Angeles area, two clubs. And in the first one, he kills 11 people and wounds others. And the second one, there is a courageous man in his 20s who wrestles the gun away from the attacker. And then our global listeners may wonder, so why doesn't America do anything about it, again, because there is the Second Amendment to the Constitution that basically says that Americans have the right to own guns. And as Anita mentioned, the Republican Party opposes really any limitations on that right to own guns. And in general, the Democratic Party does want limitations, what they call sensible gun control. We're sort of stuck there because every two years there's an election for the House of Representatives and there's no sign that either party is going to abandon its stand. And then there are some members of the House and also of the Senate that get together once in a while to think about some kind of compromise. Maybe something will pass. You know, will it actually prevent any of these massacres? You know, again, I'm going to put that in the category of Gee, the government has to do something to try to protect Americans, but you could say try to protect Americans from themselves, because there is a sizable number of people in this country who don't want gun rights infringed. And again and again, and you hear it from a lot of Republicans in Congress, if more Americans would have guns and be responsible gun owners, then there'd be good guys with guns who would stop the bad guys with guns. Well, that's part of the American cultural scene. Well, it's time now to find out what is weighing on the minds of our panelists this week. And Anita, what has been weighing on your mind this week? One word, the word win. It's a word that I've seen come up with increasing frequency in respect to the invasion of Ukraine. And it's been used by Ukrainian President Zelensky, by people who support him, obviously. This notion that Ukraine is now seeking to win. Their definition of it is not super clear, but it would mean retaking the territory that Russia has occupied since 2014. This is something that the U.S. Secretary of Defense has said will be extremely difficult this calendar year. It is a bit concerning because that was not the U.S. objective in supporting Ukraine to get Ukraine to unambiguously win this conflict. It was to strengthen their hand at the negotiating table so that we can have a settled end to this conflict. But the gap between a settled negotiation to end the war and victory is very wide. And it's a canyon filled with the blood of Ukrainians and Russians. And I worry about that with every passing day, what it's going to take to win. Thank you. And Dan? I'm thinking about Florida. What a lovely state, especially in wintertime. It's relatively warm. A lot of people vacation there. There are Americans who live in the cold northern states who go to Florida and rent a house or an apartment and stay for a few months. But politically, there's something really powerful going on. The Republican governor, Ron DeSantis, keeps talking about schools, education, parental rights. And he claims that parents know more than educators do and this is now taking the form of a crackdown on books. That's right, we see the result in many Florida schools where just to play it safe and not to violate what they understand to be new laws in Florida, they are removing some books from school libraries and from classrooms. What is it that Governor DeSantis wants when he talks about parental rights? He says that there shouldn't be books that talk about sex, 
about gender identity, what he calls critical race theory, meaning that he really doesn't seem comfortable with books that say that there are reasons for black people in America to feel resentment, to talk about history, to talk about slavery. I mean, again, mature topics that DeSantis thinks should only be at home. I don't know what direction it'll go, but I will say this. DeSantis is proud to have this kind of conservative crackdown because a lot of people think he's going to run for president in 2024, and this will be a big part of his political base. Conservatives who want to reject discussion of gay rights, critical race theory, and take a very conservative stand as though kids should only be learning, reading, writing, and arithmetic. And I'm not so sure he really means the reading part. And we will close the show on those thoughts. My thanks to our panelists, VOA White House correspondent Anita Powell and Moment Magazine contributor Dan Revive. I'm Kim Lewis, and thanks for joining us for Issues in the News. Mm-hmm.